We turn again then to Acts 17. Um, I read verses uh, 16 and 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Acts 17 and verses 16 and 17. Now there are three basic convictions that every Christian holds. Convictions that are non-negotiable. And they are summed up in three words. The first word is creation. That this world, uh, this solar system, this galaxy that we call the Milky Way, and all the other billions of galaxies in the cosmos, didn't come about by chance or luck, but they were created by the fiat, by the will of Almighty God. The second word is fall, the fall of man. Man made in God's image, defied God, became a rebel and brought sin and death into the world. And that's why men behave as atrociously as we see them behaving uh, day by day. And that's been brought to our attention in vivid ways in the last weeks Has it not? Creation, fall, and third, redemption. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Three great convictions that we have. That's our message to the world. Creation, fall, redemption. And we are under the highest obligation to tell these things in Whatever ways providence leads us and however we are helped to do so for the rest of our lives. We are under obligation, firstly, because they're true. Secondly, because the Lord Jesus has told us to go into all the world and make disciples of all creatures. And thirdly, because of the wonderful benefits that have come to us from the understanding and the help that they've given to us, they've given us a structure and values in which then we fit all the other things that happen to us in our lives. It's not easy for us to speak to others because people aren't asking us questions about creation and fall and redemption. Most of them would prefer us to be silent in what they call religion. So how do we go about doing this? And what does the New Testament have to say to help us in reaching out to people with this specific message? It tells us much. And one of the ways it helps us is by bringing before us the archetypal Christian, uh, the Apostle Paul, and how he approached the world. It describes what he did very comprehensively in his life. Um, With this message of creation and fall and redemption, if you were listening uh, to what he did at Lystra, that's how he began. He began with creation. It's a very different world from ours, but man has not changed from that time. 
and man's needs are the same, and creation for redemption are still the answers to the diagnosis of his condition and then the prognosis of how he can be healed. So Paul goes to Athens. It's probably the year 50. It might be the year 51. Uh, Athens, the foremost of the Greek city-states, a little town, 25,000 people, the intellectual center of the world for half a millennium, but now in decline compared to what it was 300 years earlier. And Paul began then by looking around, not just a sightseer gawking at the buildings and the sites that he'd heard about and that people talked about, but... uh, assessing how he could best approach this city. The obligation that God had given to him only was like the obligation God gave to Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah was up to it, and Paul was absolutely up to this challenge, as he was later when he went to Corinth and elsewhere. So after he had sussed out the joint... The first thing he did was to go to the synagogue, the Athens synagogue. And uh, there, for some uh, Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Um, He persuaded them that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And that's how always he started with his fellow countrymen, because he had a an Anknumpfungspunkt, a point of contact with them. And the point of contact that he had with them was the Bible. The scriptures. And then we are told he moved on to the pagan population of Athens. Uh, How did he reach them? Well, he didn't wait until they came to him. But he went to where they were and the place where he would meet. Many of them was the marketplace. So I want my first point is that Paul went to the public square. The Agora, the marketplace. Not like Walmart's or Morrison's. It was a place of trade, of buying and selling food and clothes and land and slaves. A place where you hired servants, where you met folk, where you drank wine and ate with your friends, where you discussed political and international affairs. It was like a huge coffee house. The Agora, the marketplace in Athens, was just at the bottom of the hill of the Acropolis, the center of Athenian life and business. It was where, many years earlier, the great teacher Socrates then had met with men to discuss philosophical questions. The Stoic school was just on the fringes of the Agora, the marketplace. So it was really a marketplace of ideas, as well as a marketplace of commerce. We've nowhere like that today. We, we, we've decimated and chopped it up. So we have centers all around Aberystwyth and in every big city where you can meet at different levels. But it was all together there in Athens. Now, notice what Paul didn't do. He didn't organize a meal or an evangelistic service in the synagogue and invite the Athenians to come in, even allowing the synagogue rulers to permit it. He didn't hand out psalm books and Christian hymn sheets and lead the Athenians in singing to the latest hit tunes of Athens. Why should Zeus have all the best tunes? 
He didn't ask them in the marketplace to bow their head for a word of prayer. We have observed such disasters when members of the rugby club, students of engineering, have come to a university evangelistic meeting and someone on the worship committee has chosen the song, If I Were a Bumblebee. Now, when many religious folk think of evangelism today, they seem conditioned to think in terms of a religious meeting and a service. The evangelist is the man who conducts the service. I was recently in a discussion of a suggested Christmas event here in Aberystwyth, and this is what was being explored. The organizers would try to have it held on the ground of Aberystwyth Football Club. A lectern would be set up before that little stand there, and there would be children's choirs from different schools asked to take part. And all the people invited, uh, the mothers of the children singing in the choirs, would be asked to sing Christian hymns about the incarnation in which they'd praised God for truths which as unbelievers who'd been brought along, they neither understood nor yet believed. There would be prayers and uh, non-Christians present would be prayed for. An acquaintance um, invited his neighbor to such a meeting and he had to sit through a prayer for the unsaved who'd been brought to the meeting tonight. And the acquaintance, my acquaintance, felt like crawling under the seat. Is that style of evangelism suitable? It's dying out, isn't it? In the 21st century. As opposed to a service. This is a service. This is the Lord's day. We are believers. All of you visitors, we're so very, very, very pleased to see you here. The doors will always be open for you to come and, and join us. But when we go out into the marketplace, we don't take some of this with us, do we? And visitors can feel that the choirs and the children singing have been intended to create an atmosphere to soften them up, like singing hymns by candlelight. And others are bored by the whole proceedings. Now, I've attended some excellent open-air meetings on the promenade here in Aberystwyth, so they'll be in August, they'll be here again. Just splendid, splendid meetings. People uh, at the Aber Conference, 200 people listening, people drawn by the crowd and, and paying attention. No singing, because people use that opportunity to slip away when things are being sung. But when people are speaking, they feel, what's he going to say next? And prayer has the same effect. And so Paul then would have that challenge in in the marketplace. There he is, and uh, he's got his pitch. There's no praying, there's no singing mentioned at all. None of that was at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Uh, They're neither needed nor are they suitable. When you are standing outside your own congregation, when you're sitting on a train journey from Aberystwyth to Shrewsbury, you don't sing a hymn to the person sitting opposite you. You talk. What are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing that Paul went where the people were. Instead of trying to persuade them to come onto his patch, his ground, before he could speak to them. And necessity is forcing us now in the 21st century to think like that. There are occasions when people come to us. Oh, they do come to us. They come for baptismal services. 
They come for funeral services. They come for weddings. They come for Christmas suppers. They come. Uh, And other people will come then. Like some of you, by strange providences, have been drawn here uh, this morning. And uh, I must always have saving knowledge present in every sermon that you would understand we deserve eternal death because we are sinners but Jesus Christ because he loved us died for us and then we are to believe in him that's the message of the gospel and somewhere, somehow always I must bring that message to you but generally in evangelism we go out like Paul went out out to the marketplace, out to the public square George Whitfield had to do that there were poor people and his heart was full. Its evangelism is always inevitably a matter of the heart. And George Whitfield then went outside Bristol. And the people were so poor and so dirty. They were miners. They felt ashamed to go to a church. So he went out to them. And he preached on Hannah Mount there. Stood there. There's a nice pulpit there. And a brass plate that describes all that was going on there. It's a great scene. Although it's now in the middle of a council estate. And he preached to the people and they wept. Rivulets of tears rolled down their cold, dusted cheeks and the pink skin underneath was seen. The principle that we learn from Paul, from his entire missionary strategy, described for us so comprehensively again and again in the book of Acts, is uh, reaching out to people who are not expecting. We're not expecting them to come to us, so we go out to them. We had a letter this week from uh, two former members of our congregation, uh, Malcolm and Ruth Firth, who are in Latvia, and they were telling us that a party from the church and another church were going to downtown Riga last week to speak the gospel to pathetic sex tourists. How horrible that word is who visit the city from across Europe. And Malcolm was asking us to pray for them. They'd not done that before. Well, how had it gone? Well, I gave you the letter on Tuesday night. Full of encouragement from the conversations and the encounters he had. And he finishes the letter. Before the evening, I was a little afraid about what we might encounter and how we would be received. Afterwards, I was actually amazed at how easy it was to encourage people in conversation and to offer to pray for them. And he gives us examples of different people. Stagnite from South Wales was there. So the question is, what can we do? How can we reach out to Aberystwyth? We all agree that we are doing little enough. I am doing little enough. We send some money um, to support... The beach mission next month. They haven't got the bandstand to use uh, this year. They're looking for other premises. Some of you in your families, you will be present. You support those uh, meetings. D.L. Moody, the American um, 19th century evangelist, was criticized for his outreach, some of his methods. And famously, he told his critics that he preferred his methods of evangelism to their methods of non-evangelism. 
So we are zipped up in our mouths uh, before we criticize anyone who stands in the open air and tells people of the love of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. We honor such men. What can we do? I wondered about the possibility of putting a TV screen on our little courtyard outside during these summer months next to the bookshop with a rotor of men and women from the church then to keep an eye on things and watch the screen. Seems to be such a suitable place for that purpose. It's our property. There's no danger from traffic. It's quiet. It's in the middle of town. We will be transmitting then as is being transmitted downstairs now on a colored screen to the people who wander around Aberystwyth. Uh, as I preach, we wouldn't put the announcements, we wouldn't put the, the, the singing and the, the prayers, but we just switch it on with a couple of men there and some leaflets and so on and uh, engage people who were interested and you were watching and that would encourage others to watch. We need to discuss that idea. Perhaps the morning would be better than the night, but I'm not so sure about that. Our marketplace on our doorstep. Someone must get a spark. One of you get a spark. One of you say, "Uh, Pastor, I'd like to see that. I'd I'd like to get that organized. And uh, finance will not be the the problem. And technology is not the problem, is it? It's working downstairs. We can get something to plug in. And try it. We can try it, can't we? What, what will we do unless we try if it's a failure fine so there was no group in Athens that had invited Paul to come and conduct a series of meetings the initiative was all the apostles he was the first on the scene he first chose the place he looked round the agora the marketplace and he saw a pitch where people came in and uh, there weren't too many camels and walking back and forth and other hucksters shouting out their wares and it was just a good place and that's where he went and that's where he stayed. I was talking to a, a missionary from Nigeria and he was telling me about the inroads that the Muslims were making into the area where he had been uh, laboring for a number of years. Ah, a Muslim came. And he sat in the marketplace, cross-legged, with a Koran in front of him. Didn't say a word. Just sat there. Day after day, just sat there. People wandered around and saw him. Then people would say a few words to him and he would talk to them. And they would come back and others would talk to him. And he would make arrangements to see them. That's all he was doing. He would sit there with his Koran. It was cost-effective. Pennies it cost him. He just looked after himself. And he heard that in marketplaces in the little towns uh, in the area, other Muslims were there. Just there, cross-legged, looking at their Korans and talking to people who asked them questions. Every time a Jehovah Witness knocks on your house door and talks to you, you're convicted, aren't you? You've got a better message than the message they have. You've got a better saviour than the saviour that they speak about. Secondly, Paul reasoned with them. So there was no singing, there was no hymn sheets, there was no banners, 
There were no brass bands. There were no distinctive religious costume that he wore and that other new converts wore. No public praying. No visual aids. No gimmicks. The apostle would introduce himself. Uh, Hello, he would say. Uh, My name is uh, Paul. I come from Tarsus. I come here to speak to you about my, my God, my Lord, Jesus Christ. And he told them about him. Especially, we're told, his death and resurrection. He would tell them about creation for redemption. That was the structure of what he had to say. This is God's world. Man has fallen. There's redemption through Jesus Christ. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. He reasoned about these things. The world didn't come about by chance. The world didn't come about by luck. The reason for man then made in the image of God doing the abhorrent, deplorable, heinous acts that we've read about. Killing people in a prayer meeting. Man's fallen. Man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the reason. Like your heart, but the restraints of your upbringing and decency and an earlier grace in our land has uh, prevailed so that you, you wouldn't dream of acting in that way. And here's the Lamb of God who takes away our guilt the vilest offender who truly believes in Jesus, even this deplorable young man. It would be mercy for him if he cried to God and asked him for pardon. And so he reasoned with them, that sort of thing. He spoke to them. And um, our rationality is part of the divine image in which we are made. To deny our rationality is, is to deny our humanity to become less than human beings. And so you find an exhortation in the Bible, don't be like horses or mules or donkeys that have no understanding. Believing in God is not irrational. It is certainly not, it's not a leap into the dark. It's not that. I visit my cousins when I'm preaching in South Wales and we we get on so well together. And I was there, and uh, I was going on then. I got up to go. I had a meeting in my Sukuma that, that evening. And so I, just as I was going, uh, my cousin's husband said to me, he says, when a man says, I've seen the light, what does he mean? Oh, dear, I, I'm late for a meeting. I wish he'd asked me at the beginning. We could have had a, our cups of tea around the table and could have talked about that. So I... I cry to God for help, and I say, um, here's a man who has seen that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He's seen it. That in him there's darkness, and in earth, man, there's just darkness. But Christ, ah, what light of loveliness and beauty and grace shines in him. A divine light, a human light, all in him. He said, well, there's this man in work, you see, and oh, he's been a drunkard. His marriage almost broke down. He's just hopeless, and he's changed. He says, die, I've seen the light. And he's seen Jesus Christ, I said to him. I had to go. 
I had a group waiting for me in my sukuma. I spoke to his mind. I addressed a question. That man's mind had thought about Christ. We find that in the Bible, don't we? Don't we, we ask you, don't leave your brains outside in Alfred Place when you come up the steps and when you sit here. Think. Please think. God says, come, let us reason together. He says, let's reason, let's talk about this, your sins. Yeah, like scarlet, your sins. In my sight. That's the only sight that matters. They can be whiter than snow, he says. You find it with Jesus, isn't you? With Jesus, he doesn't bamboozle people. He doesn't shout back at them when they come with their trick questions. Should we, should we pay tax to Caesar who's crushing us under the legionnaire's sandals? Jesus says there's a coin whose superscription, whose image is on this coin. They say it's Caesar's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But you are made in the image of God. You're not made in the image of Cameron or the Queen. You give to God the things that are God's. You serve God. You serve him. He appeals to their minds. He asks them to think, to reason. You often heard the protest, yes, but no one's ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. And that's true. Human arguments alone are utterly impotent to make a man a true believer. But so is preaching. However sound and attractive and orthodox and compelling and passionate it is by itself. A sermon can't make a person a Christian. This is his grand prerogative. Salvation is of the Lord. Thou must save and thou alone. But uh, that inability on our part and on the part of our our preaching and our arguments doesn't mean that... uh, We don't argue. We don't give a reason for the hope that's in us. We're told to do that. That we stop preaching. You know, one night, a party of young men, they were celebrating either the the birthday or the wedding of another fool. And part of their celebrations, they threw him through the window of the Christian bookshop. And he acknowledged what he had done And he paid for it, and and I went to meet him. And uh, he brought his older brother along, and his older brother did all the speaking. His older brother was quite a bit older than him, almost like a father. And so uh, when I spoke about the gospel to him, his brother said, all the wars in history have been caused by religion. That's what he said. That's what someone had told him. So I thought for a moment, and I said, the bloodiest of all American wars, in which more Americans were killed than all the other wars they have taken part in, put together, was the American Civil War. And there, Baptists fought Baptist, and Presbyterian fought Presbyterian, Anglican fought Anglican, and Atheists fought Atheist. And the cause of that war was, was not religion at all. It was a a war between the rights of the individual states challenging 
the claims of the federal government and the issue of slavery. Not religion. Yes. Like they do. Yeah. Yeah. He said that. I had to reason with him. I had to answer the question, his objection, the slogan that he had why he wasn't a believer in, in God. And then I could again return to my words to him. Our duty as Christians is to cast down vain imaginings and proud thoughts because no one who continues in his own wisdom is going to call on the wisdom of God. There's that black grass and we have to kill it. We ask the world to think. Consider the claims of Christ. Use your mind. Now, do you really think that billions and billions of lucky accidents on a macro and a micro scale over billions and billions of years have resulted in us today? Do you really think that? That there's not a rationality and a reason? Some of you have not heard me before. I'm speaking of very profound and wonderful truths and you're able to understand what I'm saying. My challenge to you, you can grasp it, can't you? You think that rationality that we see all around us, do you think, does that support chance and luck? Do you think that nature is always raw in tooth and claw and always has been and always will be? That there's no intrusion of mighty grace, of creative power, of sustaining providence, of a purpose? Don't you think there's a purpose in you being here today and my having this message and bringing it to you? Don't you think that this is all of God Paul reasoned in the marketplace. The risen Jesus met two men on the road to Emmaus. And he reasoned with them. Out of the scriptures. He reasoned with them. He spoke to them. They listened. He did no miracles on the road to Emmaus. He later did. He, he caused 153 fish to, to swim into Peter's net. In the Sea of Galilee as he was on the bank. The risen Christ did miracles. But there he opened up scripture and made himself known and their hearts burned within them. He engaged their minds. And there are Christians today, you know, and they foolishly adopt other methods. They, they distract the mind. They, 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 they don't want us to use our minds. <clears throat> um, they want our minds to be bypassed. They want to create an atmosphere by... Um, Skilled communication, tear-jerking stories. By lighting or non-lighting. By emotional stories. By music. They want to heighten our feelings. They want to bypass the mind and go to our feelings. Schaefer uses the illustration of um, the burglar. The burglar breaks into the house. There's a dog there. And so he throws him a, a tasty sna- steak. A dog devours the steak. The dog isn't thinking about the burglar. He's his friend now. And the burglar opens the drawers 
and the handbags and the safes and helps himself to your valuables. So converts are gained, so-called, and decisions are registered by creating an exciting image of Christianity. Rather than facing people with their sin and need that they need, as you need, the forgiveness of your sins from a God who is willing to forgive you your sins. If you go in penitence and confession to him and tell him that you're a sinner and but for his mercy in Jesus Christ there's no hope for you. Young children, you need to do that. Old people, you need to do that. I'm not talking about unduly exalting the mind. But I'm saying we must never neglect to present thoughtfully to people the message of the gospel. The last thing I want you to say is that Paul daily emphasized Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He was in the marketplace day by day. You see that phrase is there, day by day. We occasionally have a man from North Wales and he comes here to Aberystwyth and uh, he has a lovely banner with texts on both sides, very attractive, well-chosen texts, and he stands there in the Oenglindur Square and he stands there all day and smiles at people and he stands there and then he's gone. We don't see him for another year or two. <laughs> if he were there every day and he smiled at people and uh, had conversations with people and said, ah, weather's better today, and so on. You know, for three years, the Lord Jesus toured Galilee. Galilee's about the same size as Keradigion, our county. And he went around all the little villages and the white houses and the shepherds' homes and spoke to them and preached to them and sent his disciples to do the same. At the end of that, there were 500 500 in three years. What a remarkable, fruitful ministry our Lord Jesus had. And so Paul went back. See you tomorrow, he said. I'm going now. Talked to people afterwards. The last questioner went and he went. and Cleared his throat, had something to eat, slept, prayed. Back there the next day, day by day. And he spoke to them, we are told, the good news about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Verse 18. He had no qualms about preaching Jesus to people who'd never heard of him, who didn't possess scripture, who didn't know the contents of the Old Testament. There was no pre-evangelism in the marketplace. There was no free food and quizzes and historical lectures and music There was no soft peddling of specific Christian distinctives to gain a platform. And then later, later after the pre-evangelism, you started with a direct evangelism. He talked to them about Jesus Christ. He was naked before them. And he presented this Christ to them. There's nothing more relevant. There's nothing more helpful. There's nothing more fascinating to the people in the public square than the narrative of the marvelous life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we confront people with, the greatness of Christ. What a person. No man was ever born as he was born. 
No man ever lived like he lived. No man ever died as Jesus died. No man ever rose from the dead as Jesus rose. No man ever ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Him only. No one else is coming again like he is coming again. He's great as an inspirational teacher. He's great as our powerful shepherd caring for us. He's great as the Lamb of Sacrifice who takes our sin away. They didn't understand him at first, did they? They, they, It was all new to them. He came back and he spoke again. There was a colossal misunderstanding with some of them. What was he talking about? Some people felt that when he talked about Jesus, that he was talking about a male God and then the resurrection was the name of Jesus' consort, the female goddess, Anastasis. It's a pretty word, Anastasis. It's the Greek word for resurrection. So, Jesus and the Anastasis, you get the, 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 Russian, the Russian name, Anastasia. Such a pretty name. It gets shortened to nasty when sisters want to be mean. Anastasia, Anastasis. And they thought he was bringing some new gods because they had hundreds of gods. And there were two more that he was uh, bringing to them. Uh, a brand new married pair of gods. They were, they were confused. We read this morning uh, in Lystra what happened when uh, he and Barnabas were, were preaching there and doing that great work in a man who'd never walked, able to walk and run. The marvelous transformation of his legs that God did in, in the twinkling of an eye. And uh, they thought he was Hermes and Zeus, and they wanted to sacrifice. The priests came from the temple to sacrifice to him. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. People misunderstand, people are confused. Even religious people, I've been reading this, um, this book, the, the Life of Mrs. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and you know, when they married, she wasn't a, a Christian. It took two years listening to her husband. That would be 200 sermons. Two years, 50 weeks, 100, 200, yeah. Before she saw it. Before she saw it. So, you know, be patient and go on praying. Uh, if they come and they don't understand, well... Salvation is of the Lord. You've got to be patient. And some people there, there. Jesus and the resurrection. Two new gods. What's this? He kept preaching. Jesus and the resurrection. They didn't understand. He told them. He explained it to them. What it was all about. And people in this secular age in which we live. And we haven't got anything new to offer them. This is what we've got to tell them. Let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. He was born in an obscure village. His mother was a young peasant woman. Worked in the carpenter shop with his father until he was 30. Then for three years he became an itinerant, a preacher and a healer. Never wrote a book, never held an office, never owned a home. Never had a family, never went to college. Never put his feet inside a big city 
Never walked further than 150 miles from the place where he was born. Never did one of the things that men rave about today and that they call greatness. No credentials. He was nailed to a cross. That's how he died. Between two thieves. His executors gambled over the one piece of property that was his. His coat. And when he was dead, they took his body down and they, they laid him in a borrowed grave. Through the pity of a friend. That was his life. Then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And almost two, 20 centuries have come and gone. And he's the center place of the human race. More Christians today on our globe than ever before. And all the armies that have marched, as it's been said, and all the navies that were built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, all put together, haven't affected the life of man as powerfully as the life of this, this man, this Jesus. This Jesus. This Jesus he was preaching in Athens and that we need to preach in Aberystwyth. And that you need with your friends in school tomorrow, the people in work, the women you're waiting outside the school with to meet children. You know, I've read many great books. I have. I've loved to read all my life. I've read many great books. And uh, I've enjoyed so many of them. I've never read anything as wonderful as these words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Heavenly Father, bless your word to us now. We pray, exalt Jesus Christ in us. Save sinners, we pray. Add them to thy people. Protect us, give us grace and wisdom, how we may better serve thee in the days to come and spread abroad the glorious name of our Redeemer, in whose holy name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.